Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." Well, I must admit this morning I wanted to give you guys a good laugh. Uh, We are approaching a very, very serious and heavy topic, and that is the judgment of God. And so it might be the last time you guys laugh this morning. I hope not. (laughs) Might be, though. We all know about judges, don't we? They're part of our human history. And for almost as long as we have humans' writings, uh, we have found writings of human laws. And with that... Of course, we have the people who rule over those laws and enforce them, and we call them today our judges. Now, I hope when it comes to judges, our ideas about judges, especially as it pertains to God, they're not being shaped by people like Judge Judy or our popular culture. You know, Judge Judy, she's pretty good though, right? She says, I eat liars for breakfast. She's after the truth, right? And that's a good thing. But I think we know that even on her best day, she doesn't always execute perfect justice 100% of the time. So we want our idea about judges, and especially God as judge, to be shaped not by our popular culture, not by Judge Judy, but we want them to be shaped by the very Word of God. Yeah. So as many of you guys know who have been with us, we've been working through the book of Romans, and we're approaching chapter 2 here. And it's a very serious topic. It's about the judgment of God. And I want you guys to see three things about judgment as we unpack this passage. The first is, if you're taking notes, 
We are flawed judges. We're imperfect. However, God is the perfect judge. God is the perfect judge. And lastly, judgment for all is certain. Very sobering, right? We are flawed judges. God is the perfect judge. Judgment of all is certain. I told you it'd be pretty serious this morning. So let's jump into this first point. We are flawed judges. Now, who here thinks that they've never judged anyone? They've never stood behind that person in the express checkout line who had way more than the 10 items and thought to themselves, they shouldn't be doing that. That's just wrong. I would never do that. Or they were stuck behind that person in the left-hand lane going 20 miles below the speed limit, and you're really frustrated, and you're thinking, I would never do such a thing, right? Well, I think you all know that we judge all of the time. We judge all of the time, right? And there's an aspect of judging that I want to affirm that is good. I think it's part of God's reflection, his image in us. And when we call good things good and evil things evil, when we agree with God, that's a good thing. When we exercise discernment according to God's word, that's a good thing. But there's a bad side of judgment. Thomas Hobbes, who was a 17th century political philosopher, said it this way, and it is incident most to them that are conscious of the fewest abilities in themselves, who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. Now, the English there is a little bit old, a little bit cryptic. What is he, what is he getting at? He's saying that we like to point out the weaknesses, the flaws, the faults of other people. Why? Because we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to feel better about ourselves. And I would go a little bit even further than that. I'd say not only do we want to feel better about ourselves, we want to feel superior at times to other people. And so you see, we are flawed judges because we judge with improper bad motivations. We judge with bad motivations. But not only that, we are flawed judges because we judge with a flawed standard. We judge with a flawed standard. And why is that? Well, it's because we've been corrupted by the fall, because we have sin. Our standards are not right all of the time. Now, in this audience here, if I, as I look upon you guys, and I think about the standards that we all have, they're going to vary in this audience, right? And let me illustrate it this way. If I was to ask you, how much is it okay to spend on, let's say, a bottle of wine? What's the maximum it would be to spend? Lock a number in your head. Lock a number in your head. I'm not going to ask you to say it or share it um, or raise your hand. But I bet you if I collected that information, you know, I'm going to get numbers probably from zero because some people think that I'm not spending anything on wine. Wine's no good. To 20, 30, 40, 75, 100, there might be some people in here that would say $200 depending on the occasion or more. Who knows? Right? The point is, is that we judge differently. We have different standards for judging. Now, if I was to take that same question and go to some of the richest suburbs in the country, in New York or D.C., and ask this question, I think I would get even more startling answers, right? 
I would get some answers that might pop over $1,000, maybe over $10,000 for the people on Wall Street. And we would look at that and shake our heads maybe and wonder about it. But what about if I place us in a different context? What if I don't ask this question, but I go to Congo, I go to Burundi or Rwanda, and I tell them about my congregation here in Palm Bay, and I say, you know, for the average person in Palm Bay, we're, we're okay with spending, I don't know, $20, $30, on a bottle of wine. What would they say about us? What would they say about us? Keep in mind that in those countries, that amount of money for some of those communities amounts to one to four months wages. One to four months wages. They have a different standard. What Paul says, even worse than being flawed, is that we actually do the thing that we condemn. And let me go back to this example of wine to explain what does that mean. When we're looking at other people and we say, wow, I wouldn't do that, or that's wrong for this bottle of wine. Let's say those people in D.C., that those, those guys on Wall Street may be spending $1,000 on a bottle of wine. What are we saying inside? We're saying... Maybe we're saying this, that's really unwise. We're saying that's excessive. We would never do that. That's, that's excessive. Or they're not being a good steward of God's resources. But the question is, brothers and sisters, are we saying that we, by that standard, have never done the same thing? Have we never been excessive in some area of our life? Have we never not been a good steward of something? Have we never been not wise? It may not be a bottle of wine. It may be some other area of our life. I think for most of us, though, we can't say that we've not been unwise or excessive. And the result in verse 3 and in verse 1, Paul says this, we are without excuse. We are without excuse, and we won't escape God's judgment. And why is that? Because by our own standards, our own standards actually condemn us. You see, Paul is building a case here. In chapter 1, we learned about a class of people. These are people who did wrong, and what did they do? They actually approved of other people doing wrong with them. And now in chapter 2, we have another set of people. They're doing wrong, but what do they do? They're condemning other people from doing the very thing that they do. What do we call those types of people? We call them hypocrites, right? Paul is building this argument, chapter 1, chapter 2, two types of people, and then in chapter 3, he's going he's gonna to crescendo, and he's going to say, basically, none are righteous, no, not even one. And in Romans 3.23, he's going to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we are flawed judges. We're flawed judges because we judge with wrong motivation, because we judge with a wrong standard, because we are hypocritical judges. We do what we condemn in other people. But God is the perfect judge. God is the perfect judge. And we see this in this passage. In verses 2 and 5, we see that he's righteous. In verse 11, we see that he's impartial. And in verse 16, we see that he judges through the perfect man, Christ Jesus. 
You know, in our hearts, we want all wrongs to be made right. I think most of us can sense that. We want justice. We want judgment for people like Hitler, like Stalin, like Mao. Even when we watch movies or read fiction, pick your favorite villain, whether it's Thanos, Darth Vader, the Joker, whoever it is, we want them to be held accountable for their actions, don't we? And there will be judgment, but it won't be based on our standards, our biases, our flaws, but it will be based on God's perfect judgment. Psalm 89, 14 says it this way, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. What is this scripture saying? God's throne, his rule, it's founded on, it's based on, it's supported by, it's built on the fact that he is righteous and he is just. It's who he is. It's part of his character. Now, when's the last time we had a ruler on this earth that you can say that about? That's who our God is. He's the perfect judge, and there is no one like him. Well, verse 11 tells us something else about God. He's impartial in his judgment. He's impartial in his judgment. You know, I think we understand in our society today that justice is not blind. Sad to say, isn't it? We've seen examples where if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're influential, we know that some of these people are treated differently by the law than just the regular person. Paul's making the argument here, it's not so with God. God is not biased in his judgment. He's making the argument whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek, rich or poor, black or white, there is no bias with God. The playing field is level before God. We live in a world where judgment is biased and can be bought, but God's judgment is just. It's impartial. Let me propose this to you. I know there are people that say, you know, I only believe in a God of love and this idea that God is judging. And Jerry touched on a few weeks ago that God expresses wrath. I want to ask this question. Would God be God if he did not judge? If God is the sovereign Lord of all creation, if he's in control of all things, if he's intimately involved with his creation, if he's righteous and just as we've found out, if he's loving, would it be consistent that he would not exercise judgment? Let me illustrate it this way. Think of, your, think of a loved one. Right, for me, I'm going to think about my daughters. I have two beautiful daughters, and I love them dearly. What if they, someone offended them greatly, someone violated them, someone perpetrated a crime on them? Don't you think because of my love that I would want some accountability for that person? Some kind of retribution, some kind of wrath? Because it's consistent with my love for them. I would say that if you didn't have a response like that, maybe you don't really love that person. So you see, you can't just have a God of love. 
and not express judgment, righteousness, and wrath. God would not be God if he did not exercise judgment. It's consistent with all of his character and attributes. Well, God is the perfect judge also. In verse 16, we see that he judges through the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Now, who better to judge humanity than a man himself, right? But not just any man, the perfect man, one who perfectly identifies with humanity, who walked and lived on this earth, and yet perfectly obeyed God's law. We have issue with human judges, right? I mean, we know, I think we know, that they're not perfect. That they don't perfectly obey the laws that they're sworn to uphold. I'm sure some of them speed, maybe, a little bit, right? Jaywalk. You know, they break the rules at times. They're not perfect. But we have, in God's wisdom, he has given judgment over to who? His perfect son, Jesus Christ. So God is the perfect judge because he's righteous and just. He's the perfect judge because he's impartial. He judges because it's consistent with his character. And he judges through the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And now, this is a hard one. Judgment is certain for everyone. It's a very sobering thought. This idea we find in verses 5 and verses 16 where Paul is talking about a day of judgment. Everyone will be held accountable. It's well supported throughout all of Scripture. Paul's going to mention this again in chapter 14. He says it this way. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. You realize that Paul is talking here to believers. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all have to give an account to God. I encourage you, brothers, not to live as if you're not going to have to give an account. Probably the most vivid description of judgment is found in Revelation chapter 20. I'd like to read it for you. Then I saw a great white throne, and on him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Now, I think when we hear this type of poetic language, some of us want to tune it out. Some of us want to think of this as just fiction, but it's not. Don't live your life in denial of this reality. Don't live as if you won't have to give an account for what you have done. Judgment is certain for everyone. How will God judge? How will he judge? I think you heard it there in Revelation. He's going to judge according to what we have done. We also see that in verse 6 in Romans. He will render to everyone according to his works. Now, in chapter 1, Jerry preached on chapter 1. Paul has made the case that righteousness comes how? By faith. So are we saying something different here? I want to affirm to you that justification by faith is what we believe. It's what Scripture teaches. It's one of the great doctrines that comes out of the Reformation. It comes out of Romans. We're justified by faith. Sola fide. Faith alone. But I want you to know that there's a sense in which we are saved by our works. And hear this, because you're going to want to understand this. You're going, to, you're going to run into this idea in Scripture over and over again. And you're going to want to understand this. If we do have a true and saving faith in our hearts, how will it be manifested? Right? If this is a true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it should transform your life. It should be manifested in works. James says it this way in James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so you see, if your faith is alone, there's no works. Is it a real faith? Brothers and sisters, if we were to put you on trial today for your faith, Would there be enough evidence to convict you that you have a true and saving faith in your heart? This idea of judgment is so serious. It's so important that Paul is going to want to make it super, super clear. And in in verses 7 through 10, he's going to make it utterly clear for us. Have you ever approached a decision in life and wondered if I did one thing or another, how it would end up. Maybe marry this person or that, study this or that, move here or do this. How would it end up? Paul is not going to leave it to chance. You're not going to have to wonder what this is all about. We have in verses 7 through 10, two parallel paths, two paths, two people to look at. There's three aspects I want you guys to see. What they do, what they seek, and their final destination. So on the one hand, what do they do? We have those who do good. We have those who obey obey the Lord. On the other hand, we have those who do evil, those who don't obey the Lord. And what do they seek? On, On this hand, we have people who seek glory and honor and immortality. These are things that only the Lord can give, right? The glory of Christ revealed in a believer. God's approval, the only thing that would bring true honor. He's the only one that gives immortality. But on the other hand, 
What's this other person seeking? What motivates them? What are they all about? They're self-seeking. They're about their own comforts. They're about their own desires, their own dreams, their own wishes, their own security, their own pleasure. And Paul makes it utterly clear. What's the destinations? Eternal life, wrath, and fury. Very clear. Well, brothers and sisters, this is, this is very sobering, isn't it? Very heavy stuff. I want you to see that in verse 16, this dire news is actually part of the gospel message that we preach. It's part of the gospel. We always think of the gospel as good news, but judgment of God is part of the gospel. We call it here at Covenant, and I know other people call it the bad news of the gospel. Right? The bad news of the gospel. I mean... The good news of the gospel wouldn't be so good if we didn't understand the bad news of the gospel. Why embrace Christ as Savior and Lord? We need to understand the bad news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, he lived and walked on this earth and he lived the perfect life. And he went to the cross of his own volition to die the death that we should have died. He took on himself our sins, and he took the penalty, the judgment, the condemnation that we deserve, the wrath of God, so that we can be reconciled to God. This is how God can be righteous and just. It answers the question, how could a righteous and just God justify the sinner and the ungodly person? He maintains his justice by paying the penalty that we could not pay and giving us the perfect record, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, on that day, on that day of judgment, if you are in Christ and you face Jesus as your judge, and you look on the face of Jesus, you will see your defender. You will see your defender, and if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. Can you imagine going to court for a crime, and not only, I mean, the judge knows you, the judge loves you, and it comes to the verdict, and he says, not guilty. Why? Because I paid for their crimes. And more than that, I'm giving them my perfect record. That's the good news of the gospel, that our judge is our defender. Praise God for that. Praise God. Romans 8.1, Paul says it like this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The verdict is not guilty. Not guilty. You know, I talked earlier about judging other people, looking down on other people, wanting to feel better about ourselves. We're, we're never going to get over that until, until we see that there was one person who walked the face of planet Earth, who had the right to look down 
on us because he was superior, who had the right to condemn us, but he didn't. Jesus took the lower place. And more than that, he took the condemnation that we deserved. That's the power of the gospel. When you see how utterly beautiful, how utterly worthy, how utterly glorious Jesus is and what he has done for you, he is worthy of our praise. That's the power of the gospel to break our sin. Because there is moral balance in the universe, because God is a moral God, one way or another, your disobedient works will be paid for by yourself, by the wrath of God, or by the work of Jesus Christ. So I urge you, don't live in denial. Don't live suppressing the idea that God exists. Don't live suppressing the idea that you know, imprinted on your heart, you have a standard of right and wrong. And for some reason, it seems to align with people throughout all the ages, all over this planet, different societies and different cultures. Don't suppress that knowledge. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ today. Well, I want to leave you with a few practical things. Judgment of God can seem a little bit theoretical, but I want you to hear this. We need to forgive freely in light of this. We need to forgive freely and to take comfort. Why? Because God will hold everything into account. We live in a broken and fallen world. And you know what that means? That means we're going to get sinned against. We're going to get hurt. People are going to commit injustice against us. And I know in our congregation this has happened over and over again. And we're going to want to hold on to our anger. Paul's going to say later in chapter 12, he's going to say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Retribution, revenge, it's God's, it's not ours. So we should forgive freely and leave it to the Lord and rest in him as judge. Well, secondly, we should seek to do good. We should seek to do good, not to gain justification, not to gain acceptance, but because we are justified, but because we are accepted, we should do good. I'm so glad. I didn't realize um, we would have that video of Keith this morning. Uh, can you imagine if our whole congregation was mobilized to do the deeds of the gospel here in Palm Bay? All right, I know many of you are already engaged in doing that. But how would our city be transformed if we led our city in this effort of showing mercy, of engaging everywhere we see brokenness? We ought to be seeking to do good. And finally, because we know there is a final day of judgment, we should be fervently engaged in evangelism. You know, why hasn't the Lord come back yet? Why hasn't this final judgment taken place? Well, Paul answers that in verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God hasn't come yet in Jesus Christ. He's being patient. He's bearing with us. Why? So that we would turn to him. And so... 
until that day comes, the people of God should be engaged in telling other people about this great news, this awesome news of being reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, you are the mighty God. You are a loving God. You are a righteous God. Justice is found nowhere else, truly, but in you. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can trust that you will right all wrongs. We thank you that one day everything will be held into account. We thank you that you see the brokenness, the offenses. You will make it right, Lord. And we thank you most of all for the love that you have shown us in your dear son, Jesus Christ, giving him for us. Thank you, Lord, for that. We praise and worship him this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.